needed to stop playing coach and start to control the things that he can control. And that was the light switch. You are listening to the hottest podcast in the game. This is the Thought Force Podcast. Get ready. It's time to get in the zone. zone. Here's your host, Eddie Salcedo. Play ball. What is going on, guys? This is Eddie. Welcome to the Thought Force Podcast, and thank you so much for tuning in. If you are a returning listener, thank you for stopping by. I hope you take a lot of value from this great podcast. And if you are a new listener, um, you know I, I hope you enjoy. And please take a look at the other podcasts that we've put out in the past. We've had some great, great guests on, and I'm sure that you guys will find value out of those podcast episodes. So take a look at the at the past podcasts and. Uh, make sure to listen to whichever one you think most fits what you need. Um, And for all you guys that haven't done so already, please make sure to rate the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, because that's what really allows us to spread the message and reach as many people as possible. So again, thank you guys for tuning in, and I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. What is going on, guys? Welcome in to the Thought Force podcast. And today I have Darren Fenster here. He is the minor league outfield and base running coordinator with the Boston Red Sox. And he is also the founder of Coaching Your Kids. Um, and, you know, you've probably seen a ton of his stuff on, on Twitter. If you're anywhere in the baseball world and Twitter, you've probably seen a lot of his videos and uh, tweets because. He has a lot of great stuff that goes really behind the scenes of what professional baseball players are doing, especially during spring training and kind of what the work they get done behind the scenes. So, Darren, thanks for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eddie. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I wish I didn't have the time to do this right now, but this is the predicament that we're all in. And so, you know, if we're not on a baseball field, we could be talking baseball. So let's have at it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's all about making the most out of the situation. And I think uh, not only listening to podcasts like this, but also um, going through Twitter pages that you really like when it comes to baseball, I think can can really take kind of a negative situation and, and turn it into a positive so that when we do go back out, um, we're, we're coming out better than, than we've ever been before. But what I want to do during this podcast is I really want to dive into um, base running because I know you're very, very passionate about that. And then also um, outfield play because I know that especially at the high school levels and maybe even at the college level, outfielders a lot of the times are kind of put on the back burner and just kind of are put out there to just catch BP, um, you know, catch fly balls during BP. But at the professional level, what what how how would you say that outfielders are specifically training their defensive side of the game? What are they focusing the most on uh, during practice, and uh, what what kind of are they putting their effort towards when it comes to their defensive game? Well, we have a number of different ways that we organize our our days during spring training as well as during the year with everything from non-taxing early work where we have a routine that takes anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes that is 
completely foundational and the types of drills that allow players to focus on one or two things such as glove angle or the way that their feet work and the, the way that their hips work when they're, they're opening up. And, um, you know, we're, we're able to break things down in a way that, um, you know, they could really focus on their technique from which their entire defensive ability is going to be built from. Um, and we usually do that before stretch. Um, you know, I would say if you, know, you take a seven day week in spring training outfielders are coming in at least three days a week um, for this type of early work. Um, so by the time spring training ends, they've had a, you know, probably three, three and a half weeks worth of this over the course of the month and a half that we're down in Florida for. So, you know, they're able to leave for their affiliates with a, a really good base fundamental skills to, to really build from. And then as we get into the, the day after, you know, they've gotten loose and they've gotten their arms loose. We have an individual defensive period that, you know, we may elongate the drills a little bit worth a little bit more effort and different focal points. And then we build all the way up to uh, batting practice where that is their priority of their day. Um, that, and that's, you know, we tell them that's their opportunity to take ownership of whatever they're going to be as outfielders, where in my role and other coaches, we don't have the the time or the bodies to handhold to make sure that guys are working live off the bat during batting practice. So we make it a point of emphasis. We talk about it all the time. You know, we may check in here and there based on what, what else is going on during batting practice. But, you know, we would like our outfielders to be flying around during BP and use that as a defensive period to get better because there is no better rep for outfielders than working live off the bat during batting practice. And, you know, there's no fungal that we can create that'll do that for them. We could practice a lot of different things, but batting practice is where they're able to put everything together. And, you know, the compound effect of taking that approach every single day over the course of a year, over the course of a career, and the, the gains are absolutely incredible. Yeah, I love that. And I think uh, that really, really applies, you know, taking those BP reps really, really seriously because it's the same thing uh, when hitting, when standing in on pitchers' bullpens um, or hitting against live pitching. That's as game-like as it's going to get. So that's really where you take those fundamentals and kind of let it all come together and have fun with it. But I know that when, when you know, Fielding a ground ball as an outfielder, sometimes there's a little bit of controversy whether, you know, you should field it with your left foot out, kind of outside your body with your right foot out in front, and then either a cross behind or a crow hop. What exactly um, is your philosophy when it comes to fielding a ground ball in the outfield and making a strong throw? What, is there like a certain footwork you teach or is it more dependent on the guy and what they feel comfortable with? It's funny because my background is actually as an infielder. Um, you know, I spent my entire career as an infielder. And, and um, when I got presented with the opportunity to take this role with the Red Sox, I, you know, half jokingly said to my boss, and I'm like, you know, you do know that I'm an infield guy. And he replied, he's like, well, yeah, you know, you actually played eight or nine games of error-free baseball in the outfield as a player. So that makes you an expert. So, you know, we felt like this was a natural fit. And, um, you know, his, his, I think his point was that, you know, having been in the organization at that point for seven years and having a good feel for the way that uh, I know how to teach and the way that I break down different parts of the game and, you know, a very, you know, building block sort of manner, I think they understood that if I were to 
decide to take this role on, I would break down outfield play in the same way. And that's exactly what I did. And I think my background on the infield has really, really helped me because I've found that there are a ton of similarities in terms of what makes a good infielder uh, being the same as what makes a good outfielder. And I would say 75% of what we do, you know, has some kind of a footwork involved. That's almost identical. That's almost identical to what is done on the infield side. And, And, you know, to answer your question, you know, I've always said as infielders, you know, this is no different than, you know, do you, do you funnel the ball? Do you give with the ball versus do you push through the ball? And I've always said, you know, the correct answer is both. The more ways that you can field a ball, the better off you're going to be. There are balls that are going to force you to work through a ball and they're going to be balls that are going to dictate that you have to give with the ball. And it's no different on the outfield side where um, for me, it is a complete and total comfort thing where before even telling a kid something, we'll just hit them ground balls and, you know, almost an evaluative period before we really start diving into coaching when they first come into the organization or if they're transitioning into the outfield from a different position, we just look to see what they're doing naturally. And that is probably the most important thing is how they're naturally moving as an athlete. And then we build from there. It's not cookie cutting everybody into doing the same thing. So, um, you know, there's a way that you can be really, really efficient with your footwork and quick with your release with your left foot out in front. There are ways that you could be efficient with your footwork and having a quick and accurate release with your right foot out in front. And some of our players, like they actually consciously try to do both in our drill work in those, you know, very isolated um, routines that allow us to do that, to learn a different skill set so that when the game comes around they're able to just allow their you know their athletic ability to take over and sometimes you see guys working off of you know both feet which is you know which is ideal in my view and you know at the end of the day it's it's about what can these guys do best within their own athletic ability and understanding that each guy is different I think is a really important aspect of coaching in general so that you know you're allowing them to build within their uniqueness while doing stuff that might be under your, your quote unquote umbrella of outfield or hitting or infield philosophies. For sure. And I think it's, it's a big part of really any, any part of the game is realizing and being self-aware of who you are as a player and uh, kind of working to how your body works. You know, some guys have longer legs, some guys have shorter arms, longer arms, whatever it is. I think each guy kind of has, that different makeup and they have to learn how to use it as efficiently as possible, regardless if they're hitting or playing defense. And I want to jump into the base running side because I, I see you post a lot of things regarding base running all the time. And you, you always mention, you know, base running is a weapon. And I know you, you really emphasize kind of turning efficiently around the bag and training that with guys, you know, seeing, pro guys actually just running the bases almost like in a line like one after the other and just working constantly at those little details so can you jump into why that's important at your level and and maybe coaches that aren't that are are, that are listening to this call that aren't prioritizing base running as much as they should why why you kind of think it's important why coaches should implement it to their practice plans well, base running is is no different than any other skill in the game in the sense that if you want to be good at it, you have to practice it. And for whatever reason, it is 
the most undertaught and underemphasized skill of the game. And, you know, you just look around at different levels of the game from, you know, the amateur level to the minor league level to even, even in the big leagues with a lot of, with a lot of clubs and a lot of players like base running is not good at a lot of different places. And you could tell the teams and the organizations and the players that take a great sense of pride in it and the, the teams that don't. And I think part of the problem is the fact that there's only one stat that is a reflection of base running and that's a stolen base. So when I first got this job, guys would come up to me in spring training last year and they were saying, Hey, fence, I want to get more bags this year. How are we going to get more bags? And you know, I, I, I come back to them and, and I'd ask them a question I'm like, Hey, how many, how many guys in, in the big leagues had over 30 stolen bases last year? And, you know, they, they couldn't even guess. They probably say like 20 or 30 or whatever, whatever their number is. But the correct answer was six. There's only six guys in the big leagues that had over 30 stolen bases last year. Um, and that kind of averages out to a little more than one a week. So those are your impact base dealers at the major league level. And the point I was trying to make was that that's somewhat of a dying skill. The days of the Vince Coleman's and Ricky Henderson stealing over a hundred bases a year, that, those are gone. Mm-hmm. And that is in large part because of the way that um, teams have kind of devalued the stolen base. And, you know, the argument can be made with there being such an emphasis on uh, the home run, where if you're on first base, you're in scoring position and you're in a better position to score than if, you get thrown out trying to steal second or trying to steal third. So um, not everybody is going to be a base stealer at the major league level, but every single position player is going to be a base runner. So with that said, there are countless ways that guys can become great base runners at the major league level or at any level for that matter, when they become detail oriented and they take pride in their decision making and they have some smart aggressiveness to them and they're constantly putting pressure on the defense. And so going back to the fact of, you know, if you want to be good at something, you got to practice it. The first thing that I did uh, and really the only thing that, that I really requested when, uh, when I took this position on was when we made up our daily schedule for spring training, I asked that, we start every single day with a 10 or 15 minute block that emphasizes base running. So before these guys are even picking up a ball, they are running the bases. And the, the impact of that was twofold. Number one, by doing it as, as the very first uh, thing of the day, it showed that we were placing a priority on it. Um, and number two, at the start of the day, that's when our players and any player's attention span is going to be at its height. Now, mm-hmm. guys are always going to be, you know, locked in to hit. So you could always put that at the very end of the day. But I think the mistake that a lot of coaches make is that they put base running at the very end of the day, almost as like a post-practice conditioning. Uh, I, I know that, you know, that's what I did as a player with a lot of the teams that I played for. And, you know, it was just, hey, let's get through base running so that we can get out of here. And there really wasn't that much of an emphasis on the details of it. And um, I think when when coaches – make it a priority to practice. And then also the following up of continuing to talk about plays, both good and bad. Um, once you get into your season, I think the team as a whole starts to understand how it plays into a team winning and losing when every single 90 feet 
is that much closer to scoring a run. And that, that run might be the difference between winning and losing a game. And I think a, a, another huge mistake that coaches make is they're blinded by whether or not a guy is out or safe. And we are constantly trying to make the point that base running is not about whether you're out or safe. It's whether or not you're making a good decision. So we talk about coaching the decision more than we're coaching the result where they can make an outstanding read trying to go first to third and the defense just happens to execute a perfect relay to get them out. That doesn't mean that it was a bad decision. Whereas the flip side of that is also true where a guy should have been thrown out by 30 feet, but for whatever reason, the defense screwed it up. So just because a guy was safe doesn't mean it was a good decision. Just because a guy was out doesn't mean it was a bad decision. So I think the constant communication of base running as being a part of your team and your organization, I think helps create the buy-in once guys can see how it directly impacts the game. And one of the ways that we did that last year at the start of spring training, we had a, a PowerPoint where the PowerPoint started where we showed to all of our players and staff how the first five runs we scored in the World Series in 2018 in game one were all directly related to a specific base running play. And so if that's not going to create the buy-in to show you how base running helped win us a ring, then, you know, I don't know what will. So um, just a constant emphasis and a constant work on it is something that is undoubtedly going to help your team. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. Um, I think that that – those small details, you might think it might be the defense or maybe the guy didn't have a strong enough arm, but really a lot of the times the guys that work on their base running um, are usually on the positive side of the end result because they're taking uh, effort and putting in work on those little, little details. And I know that most of the time when it comes to base running, like you said, you kind of touched on it, it a lot of people think it's only stealing bags and you know maybe the fastest guys might love working on base running but how would you say that you get the more average speed or slower running speed guys to work on base running and actually uh, be able to contribute to the team goal even though they aren't the most uh, gifted athletes when it comes to running speed it's teaching uh, different techniques. It's teaching guys to become aware of potential windows that may allow them to get an extra base. For example, um, the, 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 the one that I really like to use is going first to third on a single to the right of center, not to right field and not to right center, but where the center fielder is going to make the play, but his body and his momentum is going completely away from the play. So where the distance of the ball, if you lived in a vacuum and you just pointed to the ball where the, the center fielder is fielding it and said, hey, yes or no, can you go first or third? You know, 95% of the guys may say no because of where the ball is and where the, where the outfielder is. But when you we're making them aware of um, the center fielder having his entire momentum going away from the play and understanding how hard that is to stop and then move your momentum in the complete opposite direction, deliver a strike and helping them understand how challenging of a play that is for the outfielder. That's a window that, you know, even below average runners can take just because of the nature of the difficulty of that play. And so there are, there are aspects of base running that have nothing to do with whether or not you're fast or not. Um, things like creating efficient turns, like 
you know, the question mark term for whatever reason is ingrained in everybody's brain from baseball camp growing up or, or who knows where, where that starts. And the question mark is the one that really we don't ever want to do because you have to slow down in order to create your turn. So if you hit a ball to the outfield, if you hit a ball in the air, if you hit a base hit off the bat, you should be on that grass out of that dirt circle, creating your angle out of the box because there's no reason to run in that question mark straight down the line. So that creates a speed up going around the base and then talking about the little details of touching the inside corner. And if you can with your right foot, because that creates a better push moving towards second base. So something like that might be the difference between a guy being able to get a hustle double or not. Uh, so, Again, that's something that is independent of whether or not you are fast or you're slow, but it's a little thing that over the long run of a season is going to make a difference in terms of being able to get an extra 90 feet or an extra 90 feet um, here and there. Same thing with the way that you time out your secondary lead where we want to be uh, touching down as the catcher catches the ball so that we're in a position to be quick off the blocks versus touching down early where you're completely stopped. And then you have to start up again. So again, like that may put us in a position to, to beat a force play at second base, or that might be the difference between being able to score from first on a ball on the bat is just simply your jump. Everybody looks at the end of the play, but a lot of times that, um, that play is made at the very beginning of the play. It's, you know, it's very similar to watching, you know, an infield or an outfield dive, outfielder dive for a ball and they, you know, they just miss it by an inch or two. And everybody sees the dive and the miss. But if we scroll back to when the ball was actually hit, how did his pre-pitch set him up for his first step? Did he have a good first step? Was he quick? Was he, you know, was he able to move off the blocks uh, as quick as can be? Or was he slow? And, you know, that, those same rules apply to the base running side of things. And, you know, everybody talks about the game of inches. Well, you, your inches are found in the details. Yeah, I think that's huge. And and like you said, I mean, if the team, the entire team is able to really buy into the base running philosophy, I think it can make a huge, huge difference. And you don't necessarily need to be a fast runner uh, to be a good base runner. Like that's, those are two separate different things. And I think um, a lot of the times it's only the fastest guys that really like working on base running because they tend to stand out. But there are small details that even the average uh, speed runners and the slow speed runners can actually, uh, you know, contribute to the team goal while on the base paths. Um, and you, you really covered it really well with how to make, how to create efficient angles kind of, um, when on the bases now when it comes to sliding are there uh different techniques you teach uh kind of let, let's say somebody's dive diving in the second do you teach them to go feet first head first uh kind of go against the tag i know it all depends on you know if the infielder has the ball yet or not but what what's your philosophy when it comes to sliding into the base well we don't have a specific technique organizationally why that that we specifically teach because obviously we're working with players who i would say 99 percent of them know how to slide by the time they're drafted um, but you know we will take 
you know, one or two days in spring training before we start playing games, we'll take the sliding mats out and we will get guys just to get some reps of getting down and getting sliding. So when the game does come around, you know, they've done it before and, uh, you know, they're in a position to, to slide without injuring themselves. And we actually have uh, a rule in the organization that if um, from uh, high eight down, you are not allowed to slide head first. And um, the only reason that we have that in place is to prevent injury because, uh, you know, when you do have the option of sliding feet first, you know, uh, it's a little bit safer than if you're going head first where you have a chance to potentially do something to your shoulder, to your wrist, to your hands, to your fingers, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, once guys get to double A, then we kind of loosen the reins a little bit and allow, and allow them to, to kind of just go. Um, and the only reason we have that in place is, is for injury prevention. And, you know, once they get to the big leagues, they're obviously going to be able to to slide, to slide however you know they see fit. So that's why we loosen the reins a little bit as they get up the ladder. I love that. And uh, I actually had Matt Tellerico on the podcast a few episodes ago, and he dove into what guys look at while they, they're on their leadoff, what they're looking at when it comes to the pitcher and being able to read if they're going to go to the plate or pick off what what's your uh thinking about where guys should be focusing on is it kind of you know whatever the guy is used to or do you have more of a uh kind of a philosophy in terms of what guys should be looking at when they're leading off either on second first or third so you know there's a couple different branches that this one goes goes off in where there there's a a mental uh, progression that guys have to go through before, you know, they even take their lead, which, you know, is probably far more important than anything that they're looking at once they do get off the base. And, you know, that is understanding the situation of the game, because that's going to be the overlying theme that's going to help dictate your decisions. So the example of that is, you know, if, you know, it's a three or four run game and you're winning in the fifth inning, you know, you could, you have the luxury of being a little bit more aggressive than say, if you were down three runs with two outs in the ninth inning, where you have to be a hundred percent sure that you're going to be safe as a meaningless run that doesn't tie or put you ahead in the ninth inning. So you have to understand the situation of the game. You have to pick up your third base coach and see what signs he may or may not be putting on. He may be putting the red light on. He may be giving you, you know, a, a green light. He may be telling you to anticipate a dirt ball. So, you know, all these different things are going into your head. And then before you even take your lead, we want you to check the defense, know where the outfitters are playing, know where the infielders are playing. Because in this day and age, with just about every team employing some kind of a shift, well, you know, you can get a, that much of a better read when you know that the outfielders are playing you know, five feet in front of the warning track. So on a jam shot that you see off the bat, you don't have to wait to see if the ball is going to get down. You know, you know, it's going to get down because you know where the outfielders are playing. Uh, and same thing on the, on an infield shift where it might be, you know, a, a head high line drive to the opposite field that normally on a head high line drive, you'd be thinking, you know, back on a line, but because you know that the, uh, the third baseman has completely vacated that position, you could just go. And that, again, may be the difference between a guy being able to go first third or just going base to base. 
so once once guys get off the base, um, you know, we we really encourage our players to watch the game from the dugout because if you're waiting to figure stuff out um, until you get on base, it's too late. So, for instance, if you see every time that a certain pitcher gets to two strikes against a hitter, he throws his chase breaking ball in the dirt. Well, by the time you get on first base, now you can think about running or now you can think about anticipating a dirt ball a little bit better because you've seen it from the dugout. Um, things like how quick is this guy's delivery to the plate where you could start taking mental reps from the dugout to time out a jump versus trying to figure out once you get on first base. Uh, on second base, you might be talking about uh, the looks from the pitcher. Is he a one-look guy? Does he mix his looks? Is he a no-look guy? That can help you anticipate a jump if you are looking to steal. Um, so there are a lot of different elements that go into it. And, you know, if you haven't done your homework before, then the game is really going to speed up on you um, once you get to first base and you're going to be looking for a cue that you should already know that's there, whether that be the timing or whether that be, you know, the delivery or whether that be, you know, a, a million other things that may jump into your head. So, uh, you know, doing your homework before is a vital key to becoming a really good base runner. And that doesn't necessarily only mean stealing bases. It may mean anticipating a dirt ball or understanding where that defense is playing or, uh, or just having a sense for when your coach puts on hit and runs uh, so that you're not surprised by a sign or that you don't miss a sign. Um, so I think being engaged mentally as a base runner begins in the dugout without question. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think that not only applies to base running, but it applies a lot to uh, hitting and defense as well. You know, when you're hitting, you it's, it's really, really good to know what that pitcher likes to go off of if he has uh, certain tendencies. Some guys have uh, very, very straight up, you know, tendencies that they let straight up pitches that they like to go to repeatedly in certain counts. Um, and then on defense as well, some hitters may just hit it to a certain part of the field on certain counts and they're going to hit it this this to this side of the field 90% of the time or something like that. So I think uh, that applies to not only base running, but a lot of other uh, aspects of the game. But like you said, base running is one of those things that for whatever reason is kind of overlooked. And most of the time players will only focus on, you know, doing their, their work before they get out there with the offensive and defensive side of the, the ball, but not necessarily on the base paths. So I think that's, that's a big, big idea to have in mind. And I want to touch a little bit on, I know, I know we don't have that much time, but a little bit on hitting and how guys really prepare. So whether we'll say it's spring training kind of in a practice setting for these guys, what, you know, what does their training economy look like? What, how much time, are they spending on the T front toss machine uh, looking at live pitching? Like I know, I know each guy is obviously different, but uh, what does it really look like at the pro level with how much these guys are focusing on different parts of their swing? We'll start our day with a period that we call open cage that allows guys to get in and do their own individual routine. And if we have, 
I don't know, 80 position players. We have 80 different individual routines where, you know, some guys are working off the tee. Some guys are only doing flips. Some guys are using a heavy bat. Some guys are using a short bat. Uh, it's, it's as wide ranging as you can imagine. And those routines um, are uh, developed in part by the player first. And then as we get a sense of the things that they do well and the things that they need to improve upon, we'll add some specific drills that will address some of those weaknesses to help them become more complete hitters. So, you know, every, every single element of that early routine uh, is very foundational, uh, you know, similar to a hand roll routine for infielders where they're on their knees. That's the equivalent of guys hitting off of the tee. Um, and then, uh, you know, whatever element that they feel like they need to address to continue to develop their swing, um, that's where their day starts. Their, their day starts in open caged uh, in, in a twofold way of number one, working on the things that they need to work on to get better. And then number two, leaving the cage at a point where they're getting their swing where they need it to be for that day or for that game. Uh, and then from there, you know, once they get out to, to the field, we'll have days where we have our traditional batting practice where we have specific rounds. We'll have days where we'll have um, the machines out where we're working on velocity while we'll the machines working on breaking balls. We'll have, um, you know, we never have days where it's just, all right, we're just going to go out and swing three, you know, with no purpose behind our rounds. There's always something very, very specific that we are constantly working on. Um, and that may just be like getting our timing down. You know, that might be the, the rounds for the day where we're specifically working on timing to the middle of the field. Other days, it's it may be more uh, approach driven uh, where, hey, we're working on our two strike approach or we're working on our attack approach, you know, in an advantage count or situationally the, the myriad of different things that may come up over the course of the game where your job is, you know, not to have the perfect swing, but your job is to execute and do the job that you're supposed to be doing within the game situation. So it's a lot of different pieces of the puzzle that we're, we're kind of working on every single piece at various points of the day so that when the game comes around, that puzzle comes together and creates a picture that hopefully is a win at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, it's huge to, to really take every swing with a purpose. And you, you talked about timing and I know timing is one of the hardest things to talk about when it comes to hitting, but what are guys at the highest level? How do they kind of think about timing? Is it when they get their foot down, when they get their foot up, is it just kind of more come naturally to them? What are, what are some ways that they think about timing? For me, timing is the most important part of hitting. Uh, and that comes uh, in a very unique way, which is different for each hitter. So if you think about a guy like a Gary Sheffield, who had a very pronounced leg kick and a very uh, pronounced you know, bat waggle, he's going to have to start significantly earlier to be on time or to be early in order to be on time. That's a expression I like to use, be early to be on time. Mm. Um, as compared to a guy like a, a Michael Young, for example, uh, who was just very short and simple and compact to the ball where, you know, he might not even have to move until, you know, the pitcher is on his 
way down getting ready to deliver the ball. So I think for every hitter, regardless of what your swing is, understanding what your timing mechanism is paramount to being able to become a good hitter who creates their own timing. And very similar to the base running side of watching from the dugout, you could be in the on-deck circle, you could be in the dugout and figure out when you need to get started in order to be in a position to be on time when that ball is being delivered to the plate. And, you know, the hitting space is very, very challenging right now because there are so many different voices um, and a lot of copycatting in the respect of um, whether it be a private instructor who's just teaching every hitter to do the same exact thing or somebody else who's just saying, hey, these major leaguers, Mike Trout does this, Aaron Judge does this. Well, these are two of the best hitters of the game. Everybody needs to do that. Well, Aaron Judge is six foot seven and Mike Trout is built like an NFL fullback (laughs) and going back to the uniqueness of outfield play of letting athletes be athletes. You know, I think to clone guys is a huge mistake. I think every hitter, every good hitter has very similar checkpoints, but they all get to them in different ways. And if you're not getting to those checkpoints in your own unique athletic way, then you may be doing a disservice to a hitter asking them to do something that they physically may not be able to do. Like the levers on an air judge with his body is completely different than a Jose Altuve who's, you know, more than a foot shorter than him. And so to have those guys do the same thing and not to say that these two do, but, you know, um, just using the example of like the, the part of the challenge of, saying, hey, look at this big leaguer and, you know, this is the best guy in the game. Let's everybody do this. You're not taking into account the physical ability of each guy as an individual as an individual to see how they move best. So, um, you know, they have to figure out what their timing is. And so many guys are so caught up on their swing where, you know, the second part of becoming a good hitter before you know once directly after timing is swinging at good pitches the swing that everybody works hours and hours and hours on that's meant to work on balls that are in the strike zone so if you're not swinging at balls in the strike zone there's no swing that's going to work right and so uh, i think that's something that has to be a point of emphasis a huge point of emphasis in every single thing that you do so if a guy you know if you're working on front toss and the the coach gives a ball out of the zone and the the hitter swings at it, he may be able to hit it a country mile because it's front toss. But when the game comes around and it's an actual game pitch with some intensity behind it, they have no chance to be successful. So even in that environment of front toss, we are trying to emphasize strike zone discipline. And then you taking it one step further, you know, there's not a single hitter on the planet that could cover every single inch of the zone. So hitters have to become aware of the pitches that they could handle pitches that they could do damage on and the pitches that have to be their two strike pitches that, you know, they're just, uh, you know, fighting the ball off or really um, taking what Alex core used to describe as a humble approach of cutting down the swing in order to get the barrel to the ball, knowing that the best you might be able to do with a specific pitch may just be a single. And so there are so many different elements to becoming a good hitter where, Yes, the swing and the mechanics of the swing play a role, but that role isn't nearly as important as 
timing and strike zone discipline. 100%. I mean, one of the best sayings that I've uh, kind of stick by is that your approach dictate your mechanics. Like if your approach is not right, then your mechanics are going to be all out of whack. If you're swinging at balls that you uh, can't really handle, all those mechanics that you spend, like you said, all those hours on developing it, they're really not going to pay off unless if your approach is in the right uh, if, if your mindset's in the right place, then those mechanics will really start to pay off. Um, yeah, so we, really we have, um, you know, we have access to a lot of video at our level, you know, access that, you know, amateur clubs probably do not have. And when a guy goes in the slump, the very first thing that just about every single player comes to the hitting coach saying, hey, what's wrong with my swing? What's wrong with my swing? And so they'll go to video and they'll start looking at the swing. but what you really should be doing is what are you swinging at? Look at that. Ask yourself that question. And more times than not, that's where the answer is going to be. Your swing sucks because you're swinging at pitches that you can't hit. And there's no such thing as a good swing on a ball in the dirt. There's no such swing as a good swing on a ball that's in the other batter's box. And so I think once, once players understand, Oh man, you know, like I couldn't hit that pitch. What am I swinging at? I think that helps recenter guys to understand, Hey, you know, let me get back to swinging at good pitches. Then all of a sudden the swing is not messed up anymore. So, um, you know, that's, that's something that I think has gotten lost in this day and age of, you know, the, the hitters of today's generation being pushed to be so mechanical and, They've, uh, you know, a lot of them, you know, you just scroll through Twitter and it's all mechanics, 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 and it's all video of a guy hitting a home run. Well, the home run is great. There's no coach in the world that's going to tell you that a home run is bad, but I think it's a very, very fine line between trying to replicate a home run swing without knowing all the different things that go into that. The first and foremost, where's the pitch on the home run? You know, generally speaking, guys aren't hitting balls out of the zone, out of the ballpark. So when a guy gets into a slump, the first thing they need to be looking at is not their swing. They need to be looking at where are they swinging at pitches in or out of the zone. That's great stuff. I know we're running out of time here, but I want to end it with one one question that I ask a lot of a lot of the guests on the podcast, and that is usually you know, if you could go back either to your playing days or your early coaching days, you can, you can choose, uh, what advice would you give to that younger self? Um, I think, you know, now, now being pretty, you know, somewhat deep into a coaching career. Um, I think the best advice that I can give guys in, in that respect, uh, and it, and it plays into the same thing, as a player to a degree is, is just becoming great at wherever you are, whatever you're doing. And so I think everybody is, is constantly looking to get better and looking to, you know, if you're, you know, an assistant coach, you're constantly looking to become a head coach probably, or you're, you're at a small school, you're looking to get to a bigger school or, um, if you're an amateur coach, you really, really want to get to become a professional coach. And so um, 
from my own experience, I can tell you that every single thing that has happened to me professionally coaching wise from, um, you know, coming on to the Red Sox as a hitting coach my first year to managing uh, to becoming, you know, from a rookie ball manager to an A ball manager to a double A manager to now being a coordinator. I wasn't a hitting coach trying to manage. I just said, wow, you know, how cool. I got a, a hitting coach job in professional baseball. I'm going to dive into this. I'm going to be the best A ball hitting coach that I can be. And in the process of doing that, I apparently showed traits to the organization that made them think that I could become a good manager without that even being on my radar. So then the following year, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a manager in rookie ball. Cool. Well, I didn't manage that year saying, Hey, I need to get out of rookie ball. I got to get, you know, I got to get out of, you know, the complex. I just said, you know, what? let me be the best rookie ball manager I can be. And, you know, I screwed up a ton that year with, with some hindsight now, you know, having managed for six years and, I think when you really focus in on doing the job at hand, all the other stuff takes care of itself. When you constantly, the flip side of that, have one foot out the door and you're constantly looking for the next best thing, you're doing a disservice to yourself and you're doing a disservice to your players on wherever you are at that present time because it's not getting your best focus. And I just, um, you know, I listened to Tom Brady's interview with Howard Stern the other day, and it was a fascinating interview where Tom was very, very open, you know, in a way that we really haven't seen over the past 20 years. And he talked about um, not being the starter at Michigan and he wanted to transfer. And he went in to have a meeting with Lloyd Carr, who was the head coach at the time, and said, you know, I'm thinking about transferring because I don't think I'm going to get my opportunity here. And, and Carr told him that he wanted him to stay, but he needed to stop playing coach and start to control the things that he can control. And that was the light switch for Tom Brady as a, you know, I guess a college sophomore or junior where he wasn't doing what he needed to do in that present time because he was worried about whether or not he was going to be the starter. Well, he then transformed his mind, realizing that that mindset was doing a disservice to his team, that if he did get the opportunity, he wasn't going to be ready because he was pissed off about not being the starter. So that made him commit to the team, that made him commit to controlling what he can control. And that approach has helped create the greatest quarterback of all time. And so that lesson holds true for players. So being present, and if you're not a starter, make BP, make practice, make your infield outfield, make that your game for the day, be the best on the field at, at that part of the day. And when you do that sooner or later, and hopefully sooner, the things you want to have happen generally do. It may not be in the timeline that you want, but in some way, shape or form, it's going to come to fruition. And, you know, everybody's got their own life plan that they want to work out. And God's plan is always completely different. But I think being present uh, is a huge learned skill combined with controlling what you can control that, you know, transcends coaching, sport, and, you know, it's life in general where, you know, if a guy's pissed off about being at an entry level position, well, you know, you're probably not going to be doing the best job that you can be doing in order to, you know, move into a higher role 
Um, and that that's in business or that's, you know, in sports where, Hey, if you're pissed off that you didn't make the double a team while well, being pissed off in a ball, ain't going to get you to earn that promotion. Being really good in a ball will get you out of a ball. And, you know, I think that's one of the greatest lessons that, um, that anybody can learn that is a, is a life lesson that will help, you know, as an athlete, that'll help as a coach, that'll help in whatever direction life takes you. Thank you for listening to the Thought Force Podcast. 